are you just watching episode 43, Bicentennial Man. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin, and I want to apologize to all of my listeners for taking so long to get an episode out. I know it's been the spring was when I did my last episode on Divergent, and that was actually quite a fun episode. But then I just went through an entire summer where I didn't even want to watch a movie. And I really, I maybe saw four movies all summer, and they weren't movies that were had anything special that I wanted to talk to anybody about. And so I've kind of gone through a really long hiatus on the podcast, and I really apologize for that. The issue that I'm running into is that I see movies as a very social thing, and unfortunately, I don't have anybody to do movies with anymore. And so nobody to go to movies with, nobody to discuss movies with, and I'm doing this podcast by myself. So uh, something that I started really so I could be sociable with other people and, and, and have conversations and discussion has turned into a monologue, and I'm having a really hard time motivating myself to do it. So apologies aside, I'm going to do this episode on Bicentennial Man, mainly because, and it, while it is, this is a bit late, um, months, a couple months ago, Robin Williams was in the news for committing suicide, and it's a very tragic event, and it really brought him to the forefront of my thinking, and Bicentennial Man is actually one of his movies that I have had on the backlist to do a podcast on, because there's a lot of things to discuss in it about what is being human, what is life, what does it mean to have dignity and death, and various other topics, which really open themselves up for a discussion from a biblical worldview. Now, I wouldn't have chosen this movie if I hadn't liked it. When I originally saw it back when it first came out in 1999, and quite honestly, I don't remember whether I saw it in the theater or whether it was one that I saw on DVD after it came out, but I do remember wanting to see it before it it actually was in theaters, so I may have seen it in the theater. This was a movie I wanted to see because it was based on a novel that was part of the Robot series that Isaac Asimov wrote. And when I was in college, Isaac Asimov was one of my favorite science fiction writers. But he is obviously one of the best known uh, atheists of his time. So this movie is very atheistic and it's under underpinnings, even though to be perfectly honest, I think if he had been alive when they made this movie, he would have protested uh, Porsche's final line in the movie. There, there is a definitely an uh, undercurrent of spirituality in this movie that he would have been uh, appalled by. He would not have liked it. Um, the movie is fairly clean, except for a, a, there is a scene where um, a human is teaching uh, Andrew the android. Uh, how to swear. And so there is a bad word used multiple times in just a few minutes, and it's um, kind of blatant. So uh, if you're going to watch it with your kids and you don't want them to hear bad language, you might want to preview it, find that scene, and fast forward past it. Um, there is some sexual content in this movie, but it's actually done very uh, uh, very carefully. There's, It's not real, very explicit. They actually talk about sex in a very clean way. You know, it, I don't know. We'll we'll just leave it at that. You can preview the movie if you're thinking about showing it to your kids. Before we get too far into the discussion of this movie, I do want to mention the soundtrack, which is done by James Horner. Uh, it's a very quiet soundtrack. There's nothing in your face about it. Um, pretty much fits the overall mood of the movie, which is very quiet, uh, drawn out uh, pace. It's a very long movie. It's over two hours. 
Uh, it covers over 200 years, which is hence its name, Bicentennial. Um, it most, I think it got really bad reviews because of its length and slow pace. Nobody who was going to ex expect a, a really interesting science fiction movie would have gone to this movie and been entertained because it was so extremely slow paced and it dealt with human issues. It had a bit of romance. It had uh, a lot of philosophy, but it wasn't, uh, unfortunately, it just wasn't fast paced enough for the science fiction audience that would have been drawn to it from previews and uh, just the very various aspects of the genre. So I, I don't think it attracted the audience that it would actually entertain. And so it got bad reviews when it came out. It's not a bad movie, don't get me wrong, but if you don't like slow-paced movies, you are not going to like Bicentennial Man because it is extraordinarily slow-paced and it feels all of its over two hours. Overall, I have to say that Bicentennial Man is a movie I keep on my shelf and it's one that I do occasionally watch. But I actually do like movies that make me cry at the end. I think of Beaches with sa Sappy Sentimentality and Elizabeth Town. It gets pulled out for viewing more often than I would admit. This is a movie that I have wanted to discuss. And one of the main premises that I really wanted to talk about is what does it mean to be human? Well, what interests me is he shows a number of characteristics like creativity, curiosity, friendship that, uh, frankly, have taken us by surprise. Now, anybody who has looked at Bicentennial Man, um, watched it, or just seen previews of it, knows that it's pretty much a modern re retelling of Pinocchio, not with the fairy and magic and all of that, but just in uh, a being that was not created human who desires to be human and in the end becomes human. And so it is. it doesn't have, like I said, it doesn't have any magic in it. It's very scientifically oriented because it's a, he's a robot and he was designed. And whether or not um, what makes Andrew unique to all of his other kind and that he, he has this creativity and this self-awareness, um, they, they kind of leave it open as to that it might be a malfunction in his positronic brain um, that because his owner was willing to uh, protect him, it didn't get fixed. Um, or maybe it was just because his owner gave him room to develop his creativity and self-expression when most other owners of robots just wanted them to be uh, unthinking slaves to just do what they're being told to do and, and not think for themselves. Regardless of that, um, there is something that we have to mention when we talk about uh, what it means to be human. And I've already kind of discussed it a little bit, and that is the author of the book that the movie was based on was Isaac Asimov. And he is known, well, at least during his lifetime, he was known as one of the best known atheists of his time. He was, he wrote scads and scads of science and history books in addition to his science fiction. And he was very educated man, very public about his uh, disdain for, re for religion. And he even wrote books about the Bible because he had such a disdain for it that he uh, explored it in an, in an antagonistic way. Now, if you take this position that the author had, I mean, his, his personal held beliefs into account, you will look at this movie in a slightly different way because we believe as Christians, obviously, that man has a soul and that you can't create an artificial creature that can obtain or 
it somehow evolved to the point where he has a soul and a spirit and become human. But if you're looking at this from a humanistic point of view, from an atheist point of view, the only thing that changes, uh, that makes humans stand out from their animals is the fact that we have somewhat have creativity and that we have self-awareness. Well, Andrew, as you see in the movie, he develops this self-awareness and this creativity. He becomes his own man. And he, because of the sentience, then in, in, there isn't anything that could be legally or scientifically or in, in any other way to, to say that, you, that he isn't a man because he has those characteristics that at the base level of a humanistic understanding makes him a man. And so you almost have to, to realize that from an atheistic worldview, what happens in Bicentennial Man at the end where he is declared human makes sense because he has all of the characteristics that make him human. Now, from a Christian worldview, we would say he lacks the biggest one, and that is a soul. But humanists and atheists don't believe in the soul, so therefore they, they don't use that as a requirement to uh, decide whether or not something is human or not. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, this is um, part of the creation account uh, in the Bible. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And that's, like I said, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Now, what we see in Bicentennial Man is pure fantasy. And in all of our scientific understanding of what happens when we create intelligence, we have yet to ever actually address this issue in real life, in reality. Because while we can explore it in science fiction, it's never really happened. We've never been able to create artificial intelligence that has self-awareness, that has this spark of creativity that sets itself um, a apart from just a dumb machine. And if you want to know my personal opinion based on what my understanding of scripture is, it's impossible. It will never happen. It'll always stay in the realm of fantasy because only God can create in his own image. We can create in our image, but we don't have the creative power of, as God. And so we can never quite breathe into anything we create, that spark or that piece of God that gives us self-awareness and creativity. And so I don't think that um, based on scripture, I don't think that it's possible for us to ever create an artificial intelligence that can have that spark of self-awareness and creativity that makes them human because only God has that creative power. Now, our creativity and our self-awareness, I think, comes from the fact that God created us in his own image. We have those sparks of creativity and self-awareness because God himself is creative and self-aware, and so therefore he he made us in his image. We have those aspects of God as part of us. Well, Andrew, society can tolerate an immortal robot, but we will never tolerate an immortal human. It arouses too much jealousy, too much anger. I'm sorry, Andrew. This court cannot and will not validate your humanity. There is one more aspect to being human that this movie puts forward. It's actually a requirement that is put forward by the International Congress or the uh, World Congress or whatever it is they call it in the movie. And that is that you can't be immortal. Now, I think it's kind of funny because in Asimov's literature, 
he's created robots that have these positronic brains that are supposedly uh, immortal because they don't ever wear down. And I think that's kind of a self-defeating uh, concept because we know that things that are uh, machines, they have to uh, live by the second law of thermodynamics just like everything else. And they wear down and they break down and they eventually stop running. I mean, that's just how everything uh, doesn't work, basically, in, in nature. Because it, it's... Um, it's just things always reduce themselves down to their uh, lowest common denominator. That's kind of the layman's version of the second law of thermodynamics. And it's interesting to me that Asimov, even though he purportedly doesn't believe in God, he created in his fiction a form of God in an artificial being that is basically immortal. But even in this movie, we see that that isn't exactly true because when Andrew goes looking for his own kind, the vast majority of them are either rebuilt, modified, or they're just plain junk. Meaning that even among in his kind, there is nothing that's actually true about them being immortal. And eventually his positronic brain would run down. There's nothing scientifically that we could do to prevent that from happening. We would mankind would literally have to rewrite the foundational laws of nature in order for us to create something that doesn't break down or wear out eventually. It's impossible. And so anyway, I just think that that's kind of more of an aside in the point that I wanted to make, but I thought that was interesting that Asimov says he doesn't believe in God, but yet he turned around and created something that is uh, supernatural in that it cannot, uh, it doesn't obey the, the laws of nature. And, and then he holds to that in such a, a very strong way in all of his robot books. If you've read uh, any of his robot series, you know that he basically sets up his robots to be gods and eventually in the robot universe that he creates. And so for a man who doesn't believe in God, he spends an awful lot of time creating them. Uh, we're told over and over uh, in the dialogue of this movie that man is mortal and that Andrew is essentially immortal, which means that he can't be human. I just chose one of the very many quotes in this two hour and what, 11 minute movie. So it's, it's something they've been drumming into your head over and over and over and over again through the movie is that man is mortal. And the reason why he can't be man is because he's not mortal. But let's explore this from a Christian worldview. In Genesis, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any fruit or any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's from Genesis two sixteen through 17. Now, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I've heard that that, that phrase is actually rendered um, not that you die instantly when you eat the fruit, but dying you will die or uh, you will begin to die, basically. It, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was where God introduced the second law of thermodynamics into nature, but I think it's where it, it actually was applied to us in such a way that, uh, that there is a overall deterioration over time. I think our bodies uh, are actually built um, quite amazingly to regenerate and they're just, it seems like there's just something 
uh, in us biologically that prevents us from constantly regenerating to the point where we never age. And I quite honestly think that that something is sin. We have introduced uh, something foreign into what was created perfect. And because of that, over time, we deteriorate and we age. If you look at the ages of people early on in the scripture, from Adam through um, Noah and his family, actually all the way up through Abraham, they were living well over 100 years. Uh, and in the case of the pre-flood people, well over four, five, six hundred, seven hundred years. And Methuselah lived until he was nearly a thousand years old. Now, a lot of people think that that's fairy tale, that that um, is not actual uh, biblical truth. Those of us who take the Bible as authoritative know that God wouldn't have put it in there if he didn't mean it. And I think that that is an aspect of showing how the curse over time has affected mankind and so that we die faster. And Adam, he, he began dying as soon as he sinned, but he was created immortal. And so he had a perfect body, so it took him a lot longer to die. And um, there may have even been something about creation that uh, helped man live longer because the, the ages uh, drop off very rapidly after the flood. And we know that uh, in, in Genesis there, right before the flood, it says that, that God was, it looked upon man and that he wanted to sh uh, shorten uh, the, well, most people take the passages meaning shorten their lifespan. There's also another verse. It's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's in Ecclesiastes, and it says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. And that's in Ecclesiastes 3.11. The reason why that's one of my favorite verses is because of that little phrase that says he also put eternity in their hearts. And it's always fascinated me that people don't seem to know to really comprehend what it means to be mortal, especially young people. If you see children and, and the youth, um, the young people, the teens, they, they do really crazy things. And it's like they don't understand what death is. And when somebody close to them dies, it's a real shock to them. Like, that just doesn't seem right. Like, death should not be there. And I honestly think it's because there's some part of us, and I really believe it's our spirit and our soul, um, that part of God that's in our hearts. Um, I really think it's that part of us that doesn't comprehend what it means to be mortal, because it's that part of us that is a piece of God, that, 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 um, that part of us that tells us that there, there is no such thing as time and that we're going to live forever. And it's not true. We do have a finite existence because of sin. But it is, I think, a natural part of us that believes at some level or some depth that death really isn't real. And so... I know I'm getting really philosophical and off the ba off base here, and and I'm using just a little bit of scripture to get there. But I think it's um, something that I've kind of dwelt on through the years is is just watching the way people behave when death is around, and I, it's almost like death is the enemy. Like we don't really understand it, and it and I think that's where all the fear comes from when you when you talk about death. It's like we don't really understand it because there's some part of us that doesn't really believe that death is real. And I really think that that, as Solomon says, is God putting eternity in our hearts, that we don't 
we don't really believe in death. It's something that, um, that we see all the time. It's very real, but there's a part of us that just doesn't believe it. So this whole aspect of Andrew having to make himself mortal in order to be human, I find actually a little funny um, because as humanists, perhaps atheists believe that that is essentially uh, one of the requirements of being human. But as a, from a Christian worldview, it's actually an essential requirement of being a sinful human because death was introduced through, through sin, but God created us perfect and immortal. And it was sin that severed that immortality, which in a way is kind of a, a picture of God's grace. And I know that that sounds silly, but um, if, we did, if we didn't have to deal with death, then we would be living forever in our sin. There would be no way for Christ to conquer the sin by, by paying the penalty for our sin, because that's what death is. It's the penalty for our sin. And by dying on the cross, Christ paid that penalty for us. So death is actually a mercy from God um, that prevents us from having to live forever in our sin. And so we can die this physical sinful death and be resurrected into an, an eternal life that is sin-free. And so that's a huge blessing and a, a mercy from God. Why do you want this? To be acknowledged for who and what I am. No more, no less. Not for acclaim, not for approval, but the simple truth of that recognition. This has been the elemental drive of my existence, and it must be achieved if I am to live or die with dignity. When I was reviewing my notes for this podcast episode, uh, that phrase that he says there at the end really struck me because it's one that is currently in the news quite a bit. And if you've been following the news recently, you have heard about uh, this uh, mother, uh, 29-year-old mother, Brittany Maynard, who has chosen to um, commit suicide on uh, November 1st of this year. Um, now, I'm recording this a week before that date, and I have no idea uh, whether I'll get this episode posted before November 1st, but I'm really sincerely hoping that she changes her mind um, prior to, um, b before taking the pills that she's been given. But that aside, um, she has been advocating for a month now for the uh, death, what they call the death with dignity laws that allow uh, physicians to basically um, give patients uh, uh, fatal uh, prescriptions uh, so that they can kill themselves. And this is really difficult for me to talk about because uh, it, it's an issue that uh, knowing, having family members that are near death, uh, I have a grandmother who is in hospice right now, um, and I have a grandmother who passed away this, this um, summer. So death is kind of close to me. I've had loved ones that have um, gone through uh, an illness that has taken them to death um, fairly recently. And it, it's, it's a personal issue to me because I just can't imagine um, living in a world where it's socially acceptable to um, end somebody's life um, for whatever reason. I don't even care what the reason is. 
uh, I know that the whole uh, terminology they're using, the death with dignity, um, is because they want to call it something other than suicide. But that's what it is. And this becomes even more personal because as we're talking about a movie where the main star is Robin Williams and he committed suicide this year um, and for whatever reason. Uh, a lot of people suspect that it was a severe depression that caused him to take his life and um, and whether or not he could have gotten help or, or he could have somehow um, chosen a different path. I don't I don't know. I don't know what was going on in his life. And a lot of people don't. And there's been a lot of discussion recently about uh, what suicide means, whether people who do it um, have a real choice. Uh, A lot of people are saying that it was depression is a disease and that he was suffering from it. And that's what caused him to take his life and that there was no choice there, that he was driven to it by his disease. Well, when you talk about doctor-assisted suicide, in in a lot of ways, it's the same way. It's the same thing. It's it's somebody who has accepted what modern medicine has told them, that number one, they're terminal, that number two, they're going to suffer in some way um, that can be cut short by taking a medication and dying, uh, and I put this in air quotes, with dignity. Um, but it's... And I know I'm really off topic from what the the, the quote that I I um pu- uh that I played, but this is just it's one of the things that has driven me to actually set up and and actually record on this episode. I've been I've been thinking about Bicentennial Man and Robin Williams' death for a really long time. But when Brittany Maynard got into the news talking about uh, ending her own life because she wants to avoid suffering from her terminal brain tumor and avoid watching or having her family watch her suffer. Um, it just, it really just tied this all together for me into a, into something I really wanted to talk about. And I, I apologize uh, for getting emotional on this, uh, on this bit, but it's something that I think that we need to discuss from a Christian worldview because I know a lot of Christians are coming out publicly and begging Brittany not to take her life um, for a variety of reasons. Number one, that as Christians, we believe there's value to life. And number two, she's obviously from her interviews not saved. And so we all fear for her eternal um, destination because she is taking a, uh, actually ending her life before she's able to make a decision for Christ. And granted, as she loses capability to think because of the tumor, um, she may not have that opportunity later. But as she's, I don't know, it just, it seems wrong somehow to allow her to end her life um, prematurely before God calls her. Um, But that is from a Christian worldview, and obviously she's not a Christian, so she doesn't see that. And for those who are not Christians, especially those who are atheists, they believe there's nothing on the other side. So for them, just ending this suffering is enough. Um, they don't uh, anticipate any anything on the other side of death. And uh, I think most of us who are speaking out so adamantly against um, Brittany Maynard ending her life, it's because we fear for her um, finding out that there's even greater suffering on the other side that she will face um, and that terrifies us on her behalf. Um, it's not that we want her to suffer. Nobody wants anybody to suffer. But we see her 
greater suffering on the other side and it terrifies us on her behalf. In the context of this movie, um, where Robin Williams is addressing the Congress and saying that he wants to live and die with dignity, for him, it actually makes a little, that, that phrase, die with dignity, makes sense because he's chosen uh, a, basically a long-term suicide. He's introduced um, real blood into his artificial system so that it is degrading his system and causing it to um, shut down. And so he has a death, just like a, a, he has a death to look forward to, just like any other human, and he knows he's reaching it. He's uh, very aged at the point that he's addressing the World Congress at this point in the movie. And so he says that he wants to die with dignity, knowing that he dies as a human. And in some way, I can I can envision what that means for him, not so much that he wants to end his life. Uh, he made himself mortal so that he could be hu considered human, because they told him earlier in the movie that he could not be considered human if he was immortal. So he made himself mortal, and now he wants to die with dignity, knowing that when he dies, uh, his remains will be treated as human and not as a uh, no longer functioning robot to be thrown in the junkyard. And I can see that from his perspective, that that's what dying with dignity means to him. But in the perspective that we have for these laws that they want to pass, um, death with dignity is just a pretty term. Um, to me, it's the same as calling uh, uh, killing babies abortion. Uh, it's it's just giving it a different term so that we don't uh, look at it for the gruesome truth that it is. And dying with dignity or doctor-assisted suicide is really just the preliminary form of euthanasia. And euthanasia is a terrible thing. It's it's something that we would that we could possibly we're we're standing at the very top of this cliff. And it's, it's, it's a terrible concept that when people are no longer useful or uh, co their cost of care is great or they, there's something about them that makes them unwanted or uh, unuseful, uh, either a mental, uh, a mental condition or a physical infirmity that makes their life value considered um, not adequate. Uh, there's any number of reasons that we can tie to ending somebody's life. And we can even have them do it themselves because all it takes is somebody like a doctor who tells them, like who's told Brittany that, her, uh, that she's only got a month to live. They don't know that. And they don't know how she's going to deteriorate for sure. They can give best guesses, but they're not, they can't see the future. They, they're making estimates. But they've told her she's terminal. They've told her how long she has to live. And they've told her what she's going to go through. And so she has decided with their, uh, to make an informed decision to end her life early. Well, what's to prevent once we pass these laws that allow doctors to tell people that their lives are no longer useful and that it's time for them to die? Um, what's to prevent that from being applied more generally? And I know people say, well, it's not going to happen. Well, they can say that. To be honest, I think they said that about abortion when we passed those laws, um, you know, many years, many decades ago now uh, that legalized abortion, um, that it wouldn't be used as birth control, that um, that it would be safe and that it that it would become less common because people would have, women would have other options. 
Well, the fact of the matter is, is that women do have other options, but they aren't told about those options. If they're sitting in a counseling chamber in, in or counseling room in Planned Parenthood, they're there because they're already under societal pressure of some sort, either a, a boyfriend who told them get rid of it, or parents they're afraid that are going to turn them away because they find if they find out they're pregnant, or the fact that they're in college and they can't see how they're going to be able to do a, a pregnancy or uh, or even childcare if the child's born. There's so many of these these societal pressures and concerns that are pushing on them that are telling them that there aren't any other options. And they go into this counseling chamber, and what's the first thing they're told? Well, obviously you don't have any other. The best thing for you to do is to get an abortion. And so that's what they do because that's what the counselor tells them is their best option. Are they really given any other legitimate options? And so they kill their baby, and then they have to deal with the uh, the ongoing physical and mental issues that arise from that, that they're never counseled on how to deal with. And, and I'm sorry, there's a lot of people who say those, those issues don't exist, but they do. Um, there, there's depression that comes even to a woman who's had a baby, she gets uh, depressed afterwards. And to have a, the infant ripped from your womb, and to have that connection that you've already made with that infant uh, severed, uh, just in a very horrible way, there's going to be after effects of that. And these women, a lot of times are just thrown back out and said, well, the baby's gone, you can get on with your life. And they don't, aren't given the help they need to deal with the after effects of that. And to me, I've, I've seen this on, on a lot of different websites where people talk about why abortion should be legal. Um, the reasons, the reasons that people give for why they w should abort their babies. I mean, there's all kinds. I've seen, I've seen people who really, with a complete straight face, will tell you that just the, it's better to kill the baby than to have it born in, in a place where it may not uh, have an adequate out upbringing, where it might get thrown into the system, where it might have a birth defect, or where, it, um, where the father was a rapist. There's all these different reasons for why that baby has no right to live. And if we make euthanasia legal, we're going to run into those same kind of issues, those same kind of reasons for killing people. It's, you may deny that it's going to happen now, but it's already happening for abortion, so why wouldn't it happen with euthanasia? That's just the way people think these days, is once you, you, you start on that, you just take that step off the cliff, and it's a dive, tell me. It, it, you go downhill so fast. Now, there is an issue um, right after this scene that I did the quote from where um, Andrew and his uh, wife, um, uh, well, I guess I could say common law wife, though he's not recognized as human. He can't marry her, but they've been um, in a married relationship for uh, many, many years. Um, they're together and they're both on life support machines and um, they're awaiting this final uh, decision by the World Congress. And Andrew passes away before the, um, before the announcement comes. So he doesn't actually get to hear them tell, tell him that he's human. And after this happens, um, Portia, his wife, asks um, for, to be unplugged from her life support. And this is where she dies. And... I bring this up because I've seen a lot of people uh, correlate uh, co 
taking being taken off life support as a form of suicide. And I don't see that. Um, I know that it's in a way ending your life, but the life support is prolonging your life. It's an artificial means of prolonging your life. And I don't, if people want to prolong their lives artificially, I don't have a problem with that. But at the same time, making the decision to stop that, um, to stop that aid in living, I don't see that as suicide um, because um, you're already being taken artificially beyond what your natural uh, death would be. And so I know that there's a, a lot of, I mean, we could prolong the life of a body for a very long time artificially, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that that person who is on life support is actually alive. And so I don't see life support as being um, a form of life. And so removing somebody off of life support um, is not necessarily a doctor-assisted suicide. Now, I will um, put a caveat on that. There was a story, news story sometime back about um, about a, a young woman who had been in a terrible accident and she was uh, on a feeding tube and it went to court because her husband wanted the feeding tube removed so that she would die. And her parents were lobbying uh, in order to keep the feeding tube in because they said that it was that starving to death was not a good way to die. And I have to say, I sided with the parents on that because I don't see a feeding tube necessarily as life support. Um, she, they weren't like keeping her heart beating. They weren't keeping her lungs functioning. They were um, just giving her the nutrients necessary to keep her body uh, um, functioning. And I, I think that a feeding tube does not count as life support. I think it's just uh, allowing the body um, to have the nutrients it needs to keep supporting itself. And so I think in that situation, um, it, 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 it's a terrible way to go. I just can't imagine what it would have been like for her. And they don't know that she wasn't aware. Um, she wasn't able to um, talk to people and respond to people, but that doesn't mean she wasn't aware. In fact, I saw an article written by a lady who had been in a uh, a type of coma for several years, and she had, was writing in favor of um, allowing uh, this woman to stay on um, her feeding tube because she said that the whole time she was in a coma, she was aware of people around her. She couldn't respond to them. She couldn't talk to them, but she was aware that they were there and she did eventually wake up. And, and she just, when she thought of what it would have been like for them to have taken her off her feeding tube and just allowed her to die, she said it would have been a terrible way to die because she would have been so hungry and so in need of nutrients and, and fluids and, and wouldn't be able to tell anybody. So, um, no, I don't think that a feeding tube counts as life support. I've done a lot of talking here without a bit of scripture. So I'm going to read one last verse and then move on uh, in my discussion on the movie. This comes from Hebrews uh, 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Um, this is just when you talk about dying, this is usually the verse that comes to mind for most Christians, that we are all appointed to die once, and after that is the judgment. One would wear clothing? Yes. One has never been asked to wear clothing. 
Now, when I was re-listening to this movie um, to find where my quotes were, this little phrase just jumped right out at me. Um, This is one of those things where if you have your biblical worldview glasses on, it really catches your attention. Because um, what goes on in this quote is that uh, it's an aspect of humanity that uh, as a robot, he'd never had to think about before, and that was wearing clothing. He was a metallic man, and he didn't have clothing because he didn't need clothing. He had no uh, sexual parts to hide um, and no statures of decency to um, live by or anything like that. But he ends up wearing clothing um, to Little Miss's wedding um, so that he would fit in as an usher, basically. But he says, you know, I'll be wearing clothing, and that, and then... It just, you know, after that, he wanted to wear clothing. That was something that made him feel like a person. Well, as a Christian, and especially as a creationist, it's interesting to go back and realize that clothing has a, a Genesis origins. It comes because of sin. Because after Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, they realized they were naked. And it was something that hadn't even uh, entered their conscious thought um, prior to uh, eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, suddenly, uh, they, their eyes were opened to the fact that there was issues with nudity. And whether that was immediately that Adam looked at, you know, the, the parts of his wife that are considered sexual in it, and it already started that, um, that thinking inside him that... Um, that is sexually impure um, and vice versa for Eve or whatever it was, it was they, they noticed they were naked and they tried to hide their nakedness. And so in Genesis 3.21, it says, the Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. And that is the origin of clothing because uh, God recognized that uh, because of the sin that they'd introduced into their lives, uh, nudity was now an issue and he uh, created clothing and he created clothing for them and dressed them um, in clothing of skin. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting thought, and, and Bible scholars will point this out, at least the, the ones who understand the significance of the shedding of blood uh, in the covering of sin, that Adam and Eve had made clothing for themselves out of fig leaves, but when God made them clothing, he slaughtered an animal and skinned it um, to, to cover their, their nudity with, um, skin, with skin from an animal. And it was the shedding of blood that became a covering for their sin. It was actually a picture, an archetype of what uh, would happen later in, uh, first in the Mosaic covenant where, um, or the Abrahamic covenant and through Moses where they, um, they sacrificed animals on a daily basis and during feasts and festivals and, and annual occurrences where they would slaughter these animals and, and shed blood in, just rivers in order to um, cover the sins of the Israelites um, before God. But the animals were not sufficient enough. And so eventually Jesus came and and it was um, all the way predicted all the way back uh, in Genesis in this in this curse that was even put down um, right there in Genesis because it, it says in um, the curse on the serpent um, said that that. Uh, I will that I being God will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So um, Christ was was even pictured right there uh, in being uh, the seed of the woman who would um, basically step on the head of Satan and and destroy the curse 
and through the shedding of blood. So there's multiple pictures of Christ in that passage. So it's a very important passage in that it shows um, not only the origin of, of clothing, but that clothing was a picture of that, that clothing, the specific clothing that God made was a picture of what Christ would do for our sin later on. One has studied your history. Terrible wars have been fought where millions have died for one idea, freedom. And it seems that something that means so much to so many people would be worth having. It is everything in one's bank account. <laughs> Why would you want to give me? To purchase one's freedom. One wants to be free. You are free now. I must ask you to leave this house. But, sir, I don't wish to leave. In John 8.32, the Bible says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a, a very often misquoted uh, verse from the Bible. It actually, a lot of people just use truth to mean the truth about something, but they don't take into account that the truth that's being spoken of in this patch, passage is um, basically a name for Christ. So you will know Christ and Christ will set you free. Um, this is freedom um, from sin, our bondage to sin, our enslavement to the sinful nature that we are born with. Um, this is a freedom that we only get through accepting the free gift of salvation through Christ. And as Andrew has said in the first quote, and I, I put all three together because I just, I, I wanted to get that. I, I didn't want to just sit there and have you listen to a good portion of the movie. So I pulled out the, the parts um, that I, I wanted you to specifically pay attention to, but where he, he speaks about all the wars that have been fought over the need for freedom. And I think that that, um, that that need to be free is in all of us. And thank God I live in a country where we do, to some extent, still have freedom. There are uh, a lot of issues where our government has taken over and instituted laws and really uh, legislated um, what it means to to live um, all aspects of our life from uh, education to uh, employment and taxes. And there's lots of ways we are not free anymore, but we do have a system of government that is based on the essential concept of freedom. And there were uh, a t there was a time in our past where slavery was legal here in the United States, and we fought a bloody war over um, over that, though there were other issues involved in that war, but um, that's the one we remember the most looking back on it historically. Um, the, there, was an, there was an aspect to that that I have to say, and maybe uh, some people will disagree with me on this, but I think it was... Uh, an aspect of science and humanism that instituted that type of slavery um, because we dehumanized um, the African-American, uh, the, the African, the, the man who had darker skin than the rest of us. And we, uh, because of evolution, we were able to um, say that he was a lesser form of man and therefore inferior to us and that we could therefore enslave him. 
And I think that's what made that type of slavery possible was this whole concept of man evolving from an ape like creature. So therefore there would be inter intermediary forms and that uh, men with darker skin who came from the dark wilds of Africa who lived in, in a less civilized uh, form were therefore closer to animal and that we could treat them as, uh, as animals. And I think that that concept of slavery or of that, that somebody not being a person um, actually came from uh, a misunderstanding of science. And I, and I do, I, I will freely admit that there is slavery in the Bible. Um, there's even a, a, an entire book in the New Testament that is uh, Paul writing to a slave owner, urging him to uh, forgive and free a runaway slave who has become a Christian. Um, that there's, there's this issue of slavery even dealt with in the Bible, but I, w I would caution people to equate the slavery in, in Scripture as the same kind of uh, slavery that what we had here in the, the uh, in the United States and then across the world during a certain period of our history, um, they were different, uh, a very different. A lot of times, uh, slavery in the Bible was uh, a form of debt payment. Um, somebody would sell themselves or their family members in order to pay off a debt, and it was usually for a specific period of time, and then they would be freed. Um, there was also the enslavement of conquered of conquered nations uh, or peoples. Um, and, and even in the laws that we see in the Old Testament, uh, people were uh, still considered people, not property. Uh, though they were property, they were still people. And the laws told them that, told the owners that they had to deal with their slaves uh, in, a, in a dignified way. Um, even when they were a subject, especially even a subjugated women, um, they had to be given the rights of, of wives uh, and, and treated with dignity. So... The slavery does exist in the Bible, not necessarily in a form that says that God uh, ordains it or says that we have to do it. Um, but at the same time, it's, um, it's a picture of how we are freed from Christ, but making ourselves willingly into bond servants on his behalf. And so we are living with the truth that has set us free and then willingly uh, serve him as bond slaves, as servants. So there is this aspect in the movie that talks about freedom. And one thing that is actually drawn, your attention is drawn to right after this last quote that I put on there. And I didn't include it in the quote because uh, right then when he's told his, he is free, Andrew quits referring to himself as one. He now becomes I. And that is a significant um, portion of the movie because when he is told he is still a robot but that after he um, first addresses the World Congress in an attempt to become human, um, when they deny it, he switches back to using one instead of I, just briefly. Um, he says, one is glad to be of service. And so there's this aspect of, of identifying yourself as a person to yourself, as yourself, um, when you know that you are free and no longer property. Now, I find it interesting because early on in the movie, um, when the Martins first purchase uh, Andrew, there is a situation where Mr. Martin has to tell his daughters or create a rule for the family. 
but property is also important. So from now on, as a matter of principle, in this family, Andrew will be treated as if he were a person. The last thing that I want to talk about regarding uh, freedom and property and personhood is one of the things I noted in this movie was that Mr. Martin, from the almost the beginning, treats Andrew as a person. And part of that treatment required um, him to trust him with his family, um, respect his space, um, give him responsibility, and he ex had an expectation um, that Andrew would accomplish or create something. And I think that in what God gave us, our dominion over um, his creation, I think in a way um, that is God's placing on us personhood because he trusted us with his creation and he respected us enough to believe that we could on some aspect of, well obviously he didn't need to believe he knows everything but he respected us he gave us the responsibility and he had an expectation for what we would do with that responsibility and I think that that is having somebody in authority over you who creates that um that responsibility in a person is what gives them maturity, gives them something to achieve, to have a goal, um, to, to work towards. And I think Andrew just fulfilled what his owner's expectations of him were. And so because of that, he, he grew to meet those expectations. I think in the same way, um, when we have the freedom to... Um, grow as individuals, and have somebody who expects something from us, um, not just to sit back and um, and live the mundanity of life, but actually have people who believe in us, who respect us, who have expectations of us to, so that we will set goals for ourselves and succeed. Um, I don't know. I just that that really struck me that that was really the beginning of Andrew's um, and air quotes again, evolution into being a man. And I think that that every one of us goes through that kind of growth and change as individuals, because as we're, when we are children, a lot of times um, what defines who will, who we will grow up to be is the amount of freedom and, um, uh, space that we're given by our parents, as well as the expectations that they they place on us to succeed. So this is kind of a reminder, I think, to those of us who have children, that we should, in some way, expect from our children um, things that they are capable of achieving, and give them the space and the freedom to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. And I think that we can create responsible people just simply by respecting, trusting, and giving them responsibility. Now looking at the time clock, I think I should call a quit on this discussion. There's probably a few more things that I could talk about in a two-hour plus movie, but I think I've probably beat this horse to death. If you do see this movie and I kind of hope that you have watched this before you have listened to my podcast because 
Uh, I'm not sure that because I jumped around in the movie so much, it will have made sense to you unless you've actually watched the movie through. But hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion. I would very much like to know if you have any comments or criticisms or things to add to this conversation. Um, you can check us out at areyoujustwatching.com. The show notes for this episode are at areyoujustwatching.com slash 42. Um, you can leave comments there. There's also uh, lots of information about subscribing and um, checking out other podcasts from the Noodle Mix Network. Um, you can also leave a voicemail at 903-231-2221. Um, or you can email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. I normally do a did you see that um, at the end of um at my episodes, but I haven't really gotten many submissions. I think uh, my Divergent episode, I did have a submission that I placed in, and but I, it's the only one I've ever gotten. Um, I did. I kind of went off track in in ta- discussing uh, some of the news stories and th- some of the news stories and things uh, in in this movie. So, or in the discussion of this movie. So I think I'll um, not go off topic any more than I already have. Um, I do want to uh, just put it out there that I am looking for a co-host for this podcast. It's becoming harder and harder for me to do it by myself. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm just not motivated um, to watch movies and discuss them when I'm sitting by myself in uh, a lonely room. To me, watching movies is very much a social uh, event. So if you're interested at all in... um, being a co-host, and I am set up to record through Skype, so if you have um, the ability to Skype and would like to join in the conversation and would like to contact with me um, to know what more that might entail, um, please just go ahead and email uh, me at uh, either at the feedback at areyoujustwatching.com or you can email me directly at uh, efranklin at gmail.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, though I have to admit I do not tweet very much, which just means that I won't fill your uh, tweet box with tons of um, useless information. Uh, I only tweet when I post episodes or have something I really want people to uh, take note of. So um, you can find me on Twitter at E. Franklin. Just very easy there to remember. Um, Like I said, if you're interested in um, co-hosting, please contact me. I can't guarantee that I will have any more episodes out this year. Uh, This time of year gets very busy for me. Uh, I do a lot of traveling for the holidays, and it's just really hard to sit down and record. Um, The the burden of doing uh, the preliminary work and the post-production work for this podcast, uh, it is... Uh, something that I would like to share because it is very time consuming and I not only work full time but I freelance as well so I have a lot of commitments on my time and I am very sorry to all of my listeners for only getting out I believe it's three episodes this year Um, but uh, if you'll stick with me and possibly somebody the Lord will bring somebody uh, in to join me in this podcast and we can keep it going for many more years so um, just leave that with you and I hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for listening I'm Eve Franklin and don't just watch are You Just Watching is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, 
visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx. This podcast is a proud member of the Crossover Nexus, a group of podcasts and blogs that engage faith and pop culture. Find more at crossovernexus.com.